right, so last week we looked at the continued prosecution and final pronouncement of punishment, right? So today we continue on. Today we're going to look at the parody, which is the soldiers mocking Jesus, the parade of Jesus being marched through the streets to his point of crucifixion, and the final persecution of Jesus through his death on the cross. So that's what we're going to look at today. We are going to work our way through section by section through this uh, passage today. So we're not going to read it all together up front, but we'll read the first uh, four verses or so together. And then we'll pause for a moment and pray. But let's hear God's word as we get into and continue on in Mark 15 this morning. Starting in verse 16. It reads this. We'll read through verse 20. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with the reed and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put on his own clothes back on. And they led him out to crucify him. Let's pause with that. Let's come before the Lord. Let's pray. Father, God, we read these words. And in one respect, Lord God, it hurts our heart. And in another respect, we know the end of the story. So, Father, we ask, Lord, that you would just speak loud and clear. Lord God, we praise you for this morning. We thank you for the beautiful day you've given to us. We thank you, Father, for your grace this morning and allowing us to be here to set up and to come into your presence through worship and your word. So, Lord, as it is our prayer every week, we pray by your spirit in Jesus' name, would you speak to our hearts. Let us know exactly what you want us to hear, to know, to change, and to work out in our life, Father God, as we leave this place today and move forward in this life you've given us. Thank you, Jesus, for your love for us. Pour it out on that cross. Thank you, Father, for your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So in this first portion in verses 16 through 20, we read about a parody. So a parody is obviously just a word I found that means mocking, right? The soldiers bring Jesus in to actually, it's, uh, and again, please don't get caught up in this. It's just the way it worked out. But they bring him into Pilate's palace. It's called the Praetorium. I, I know, it's, it, you think that was set up, but it really is not. It really is not. That is, that's here. That wasn't Cam trying to be fun. But it's the way it worked out. It's Pilate's home, his household, his palace. And it says they called together the whole garrison. And I, I read this, and, and this was kind of fascinating to me because I think sometimes we think maybe there were four or five, six guards, maybe ten or whatever, whatever's on hand. But in a lot of different ways that I read that when they called the whole battalion together, that could mean upwards to 100 to 200 soldiers. If they were there, present and available. So I want you to imagine if that were the case. I'm not saying it was. But if that were the case, as the word tells us, there could have been a couple hundred soldiers surrounding Jesus. So if that were the case, that should bring a little enlightenment to the 
intensity of this parody, this mocking, the beating that was being inflicted, the laughter at him as he is set in the middle and dressed up like a king. They put on this robe. They fashion that crown of thorns and, and press it into his head. Matthew's account tells us they, they get a reed and they put it in his hand as if it were a scepter. Full mocking and parody of Jesus as if he were the king. He says they're bowing down to him. They're, they're calling him, hail, king of the Jews. So you can imagine one in the humanity of Jesus, the loneliness he must have felt as potentially hundreds of people are gathering around him, mocking, laughing, hitting, spitting on him. They're saying they took the reed and hitting him on the head with the crown of thorns. Now, again, I've looked into this, and again, I'm not saying this is fact and this is true, but if you do some research into the thorns in Israel, it's not the little rosebush thorns. Now, that would hurt enough, I think, for us. I think we could all agree to that if you've ever fell into a thorn bush. But typical thorns in Israel could range up to three to four inches in length. So I want you to imagine that, if that were the case. So it's not as if they just took that crown and just rested it on his head. It's not what they did, did they? So you can imagine the more pain, more persecution, the inflictment. It just it, it's so intense. And again, I know I say this every week in this story, but please don't hear this as just one more telling. Please. We can get into that been there, done that mentality with a lot of what we read in Scripture. Please don't do that. Remove yourself from that if you can. Place yourself in this because this should be personal. This should be real as what Jesus Christ did for you and for me. The pain that he took on is so intense. The mocking that he received is so intense. Most, if not all commentators, and in fact there was one that mentioned every commentator and every historian that could be found to look at this segment, nobody sees this intense mocking and humiliation in any way, historically or traditionally, going together with the crucifixion process. So what does that tell us? What they were doing, this was specifically meant for Jesus. One, to fulfill prophetic words that Jesus spoke. But this was so intense in how they viewed Jesus. This humiliation was unlike it's ever been seen before. So it just ramps up the intensity of what's going on. I want to speak to the crown of thorns for a minute. I know we did a week ago, and we're, we're mentioning it again today, but I, I kind of want to bring some relevance and, and, and context to it. Because thorns are talked about throughout Scripture. But I kind of want to bring some revelation, if it hasn't been that way for you before, I want you to think about man's original sin for a moment. So I'm going to take us back to Genesis chapter 3. It gives us the picture of man's original sin that is placed on Jesus. It'll be up on the screen here so you don't have to flip all the way back if you don't want. But in Genesis 3 verses 17 and 18, God speaking to Adam and Eve, he says, To the man he said, Since you listened to your wife and ate from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat, the ground is cursed because of you. All your life you will struggle to scratch a living from it. It will grow thorns 
and thistles for you, though you will eat of its grains. So from the outset of man's original sin, we now see that sin symbolically pressed, physically, truly pressed, but in the, in the symbolic uh, gesture of sin being pressed on Jesus that he's carrying. Powerful, isn't it? From the beginning to the culmination of the plan that was set up from the beginning of time. It gives us that picture of what he carried. Verse 21, it says in, back in Mark 15, and they compelled a passerby. So as they're leading Jesus out now, they finished the parody and now they're going to lead him out in the parade through the streets to the place of his execution. It says, and they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. So Simon is chosen. Now, if you want in your own study later on, it's a kind of a neat little study to look at the difference between Simon the Cyrene and Simon the disciple. Because where was he? Peter. Gone. Grieving. Left. Remember we said he, he dropped off the scene, but yet here another Simon is. So I'll, I'll leave that for you. But Simon Cyrene is there. He's from North Africa. Cyrene is uh, in North Africa, modern-day Libya, right next to Egypt there. So he is obviously in Jerusalem for the Passover. And he is chosen out of the crowd, crowd to assist Jesus in carrying the cross. So one, it gives us insight into the state and pain that Jesus was feeling at the moment that he couldn't carry on. So much pain that was inflicted that we've talked about the last couple of weeks. In fact, history and tradition tells us that a lot of prisoners even died from the flogging prior to even being crucified. So remember that flogging that he endured for us that we talked about, completely opening up his back, shredding his back from the shoulders down to his legs, and now has to carry the cross to its place. So Simon is compelled to do physically what we're asked to do spiritually. I want you to make that connection. Kind of an interesting connection. Because we can read all day long. In fact, if we go back to our studies in Mark chapter 8, verses 34 and 35, what does it say? If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. So we talked about this long, long ago, back in Mark chapter 8. That we in our life daily need to pick up our cross, deny ourselves. We cannot be the center of attention of our own life. We can't walk through life staring into the mirror, but we do. Too often, bless you. Too often we just go through life that way. Me, world. We just think the world revolves around us, don't we? And we need to remove ourselves. That's what denying ourselves means. Take ourselves out of the way. Release ourselves of complete self-centeredness. And taking up our cross is death to self. We're not the center of attention. Our whole vision and mindset and who we are is allowing the Holy Spirit to work in and through us. It's not about us. It's about Him. But remember, death to self is a faithful public 
call, just as crucifixion was a public spectacle. The crucifixion of Christ was not done in some back corner out of the sight of everybody. It was done right on the side of the road, the road where everybody would travel, because crucifixion would serve as a warning. One, your judgment is listed on your cross so they know what you did, and it serves as a warning for everybody else to not do the same thing or else. So crucifixion was a public spectacle. So denying ourselves and taking up our cross is a and should be a public spectacle. To warn others to keep from being Christian? No, we need to flip that, and that's what Jesus did for us. To show them what a follower of Christ is. To show them the love of Christ, the peace of Christ, the salvation and hope of Jesus Christ because of how we put ourselves and him on display publicly, daily, all the time. Crucifixion is shameful. Again, tradition and history tells us that the majority of those crucified were done so naked. Sorry for the kids in the room, but it's the reality. They were done so completely naked. Humiliation to the core. Crucifixion, obviously, as we'll talk about in a little bit, is full of suffering. There's no doubt about that. And we'll get into some specifics in a little bit, but humiliation all the way, suffering all the way. So following Jesus to the fullest extent will bring shame. Maybe shame from people who don't understand. Maybe shame from family members who don't believe the same as you and therefore shun you, get rid of you, don't want to be around you, just like society. There's suffering in the name of Christ. The emotional toll it will take to pick up your cross daily, die to yourself, will weigh heavy on you. But that's what we're called to do. The suffering of the spiritual attack as you follow Jesus and pursue his ways of expanding his kingdom here on earth, it's no easy task. And if that's one thing I'm going to challenge myself to do and all of you to consider is following Jesus Christ is not meant to be easy. It's not meant to be easy. I don't want you to go seek the hard, seek the difficult, don't seek the persecution. But it's not meant to be easy. So don't set up your life to be easy because it's not in Christ. When you set up your life to live in the peace and the ease that society determines you should have, that's then you setting up your life to live for you and not Christ. That's not self-denial. So continue to pursue Christ-likeness. Verses 22 and 23 in Mark 15. It says, And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. So again, I want to stop there for a moment because we read a word in that, in that verse that should take us back a little bit as well. It takes us back to the birth of Jesus as myrrh was one of the gifts presented by the Magi to him. And here it is now presented to him at his death. But we don't just look at myrrh. We're going to look at all three gifts really quickly that the Magi presented. Number one was what? Gold. Gold was presented to Jesus, right? Because gold fit for 
a king. Gold fit for a king. And Jesus is crucified with the charge of being the king of the Jews. How right it was. But let me take you back to Matthew chapter 2, verse 2. What did the Magi proclaim? Who were they searching for? It tells us in Matthew 2, 2, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? It's not just the connection of Scripture that means something. It's the connection of his whole life. These are not just stories. This is our life. This is for us. So when these magi come to find him, they're looking for the king they knew was born to be king. And they presented him gold. For we saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. And here now, Jesus is being mocked and killed as king of the Jews. But how true it was. How true it is. Forgive me. Gift number two, frankincense. Does frankincense hold weight for what Jesus is going through now? Maybe right at the moment, not so much, but it will. Because frankincense is what? It's a perfume. It's fragrance. And maybe that fragrance that was brought to his tomb later to anoint his body as they would do because their burial process, they needed to, they would pour perfume over the body and anoint the body and kind of help maybe with the smell of decomposition. But frankincense is also used in connection with royalty and deity. And then gift number three, myrrh. They offered him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And here now myrrh is being used to present to Jesus. And again, myrrh is a spice, but in this sense it's used as a narcotic mixed with drink to numb the pain. This was tradition. This was common. This is what they would do. This was their sign of mercy to all those being crucified. But what did it say? Jesus did not take it. Does that resonate with you? Why? Because he didn't come and go through all this just so he could take care of himself and numb the pain a little bit. No, he took the full weight of the sin of the world and meant it to feel it, the full measure of it, not to deny any of it or to make himself more comfortable. But he denies the drink to maintain his faculties and what he was accomplishing. Let's move on, verses 24 through 28. It says, and they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide which, what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. So for a moment right now, I just want to take some pause. And we're going to focus on that phrase, And they crucified him. I don't think a lot of the times today we take into consideration our own forms of capital punishment. We know what they are. But do you ever look at them as to the effect that they have on the human body? If you did, it would give you a different perspective of it. But we can talk about the electric chair. We know what it does. But have you ever looked into the medical effect on the human body that the electric chair imposes? Or how about the gas chamber? We know what it does. 
But again, we don't talk about it because we know the intent of it, and it kind of keeps us from living in the gruesome, if I can put it that way. But if I can say, however, when we look at the crucifixion, I think, it's, I think it benefits us a little bit. To look at the full weight of what crucifixion was and the effect it had on the body of Jesus Christ. Just like we talk about the flogging, just like we talk about the beating and the spitting and the humiliation and the persecution, the ripping open of his back and everything else that had been done up to this point. And now here they crucify him. So we used someone by the name of C. Truman Davis before to look at the effect of flogging and the, the whip that was used and the stone and the everything else that was used to open up his back. So we're going to use him again to look at the process from a medical perspective of crucifixion. So it says Jesus here is quickly thrown backwards and on his shoulders against the wood. The legionnaire feels for the depression at the front of his wrist. He drives a heavy, square, wrought iron nail through the wrist and deep into the wood. Quickly, he moves to the other side and repeats the action, being careful not to pull the arms too tightly, but to allow some flex and movement. The cross piece is then lifted in place at the top of the vertical beam. The left foot is pressed backward against the right foot, and with both feet extended, toes down, a nail is driven through the arch of each, leaving the knees moderately flexed. The victim is now crucified. Air can be drawn into the lungs, but cannot be exhaled. Jesus fights to raise himself in order to get even one small breath. Finally, carbon dioxide builds up in the lungs and in the bloodstream and cramps partially subside. Spasmodically, he is able to push himself upward to exhale and bring in the life-giving oxygen. Hours of this limitless pain, cycles of twisting, joint-rendering cramps, intermittent partial asphyxiation, searing pain as tissue is torn from his lacerated back as he moves up and down against the rough timber. And then another agony begins. So I want you to, I'm going to stop there for a moment and just think, in order to lift himself up, he has to press down on those nails in his feet. And where those nails are, they're pressing against the tendons and ripping apart. And you can just have, if you've ever touched a tendon, that quick shock it sends through your system. Now imagine the intensity of that hundredfold. With the same pain in his hands, if not using his hands to kind of pull himself up. Because if you ever tried to inhale but weren't allowed to exhale... That's what he has to do. So he has to lift himself up or push himself up, scraping his back up and down this cross. And it's not a nice, sanded, smooth cross. This is rough. Only to get what breath he could, only to fall back down. And I've read other accounts where eventually doing that time and time again, your joints would start to come out, both in your shoulders and your elbows and your wrists, so that your arms are almost doubled in length. It's a gruesome scene all to just simply breathe, but this is done on purpose to aff afflict the most intense amount of pain as possible. So if criminals were to get to that point after the beating and after the flogging and after the parade of movement through the streets, they wouldn't last too long because of the pain that they're inflicted upon while they're on the cross. 
So then he says another agony begins, a deep crushing pain deep in his chest. As the pericardium slowly fills with serum and begins to compress the heart. The compressed heart is struggling to pump heavy, thick, sluggish blood into the tissues. The tortured lungs are making a frantic effort to gasp in small gulps of air. The body of Jesus is now an extremis, and he can feel the chill of death creeping through his tissues. This is what our Lord went through for us. In its day, the most agonizing, painful way someone could experience death. And as it goes on, it says the soldiers are there once their job was done. They started to cast lots for his clothes. This is just simple fulfillment of scripture. We go back to Psalm 22. In Psalm 22, verse 18, it says, They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Most of Psalm 22 is a prophetic word about the death and crucifixion of Jesus. And then the charge, the truth, as we talked about, against Jesus is fixed above his head. In fact, every gospel account mentions this, but mentions it in their own way. In Matthew, it's, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. In Mark, as we read, the King of the Jews. In Luke, this is the king of the Jews. But I want to read John's account. John's account in John chapter 19 gives us a little more of the story behind the charge that is placed above Jesus' head. In John 19, verse 19, it says, Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather, this man said, I am king of the Jews. But Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. So that the final account and inscription that would be read above Jesus' head in his death by all that came by to read was the truth. <clears throat> excuse me, that said, this is the king of the Jews. And then Jesus is also crucified between two robbers. And we're going to come back to that towards the end. Well, let's move on to verses 29 through 32. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. So here, Jesus being convicted of blasphemy, now people blaspheming his name right in front of him as they pass by, using his own words or their version of his words to mock him as he die. Again, we go back to Psalm chapter 22. It'll be up here on the screen. Verses 7 through 8. It says, All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Every moment of Jesus' crucifixion 
was a prophetic word that had been written hundreds and hundreds of years before it happened. But here the chief priests also join in to mock Jesus, calling him the king of Israel, taking it a step further, saying he saved others, he cannot save himself. So what does that tell us? Here the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, those that convicted him, are going to follow and see his conviction and death through. And what do they say? He saved others, but he can't save himself. They witnessed his ministry. They followed him and saw the things that he did. Many times questioning him about those things. So they saw the effect and his salvation that he brought to others through healing physically or emotionally or whatever way. They knew of his power. They knew of his healing touch. But they saw him as a mere miracle worker. Not in what he was now doing, even for them. They completely lost sight. As Israel's religious leaders, they completely lost sight of what was happening before them. Completely blind and deaf to who he was and what he was doing. But even beyond that, they lost the entire vision of the scriptures that they had that pointed to him in this moment. Completely ignoring it. So I'm going to say, based on what we talked about last week and the response we should have to our sin in living like the chief priest or Pilate or Barabbas, let that be a lesson to us all. Not to ignore the word of God that goes before us. So we see all. Not as if it turns us into these people that can read the future. It's not what it's meant for but to adhere to God's word so much that it dictates the course of our life. That we don't forget everything that's been written has been written for us. So even the criminals crucified on either side of Jesus mocked him, Mark tells us. So rejection, abuse, and mockery attack Jesus from the highest level of society to the lowest level of society. Another confirmation of the humiliation and loneliness Jesus felt in this moment. But again, let us not forget what Scripture said. Philippians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient, even death on a cross. This is what our God did for you and for me. So let me remind us of where we've been the last couple of weeks. A couple weeks ago, I asked you to think through your response to the humiliation and prosecution of Jesus. That that humiliation and prosecution should bring about three responses, at least that we talked about. One, it should bring us a response (coughs) willing to bear the pain and humiliation that Jesus went through, whether we do that emotionally or physically. Two, we should diligently praise his name and have even more assurance of our faith because of what he had gone through for us. Then last week, we talked about the response to our own sin as we talked about three aspects, again, that we just mentioned. The chief priests. Are we cloaking ourselves in religiosity as we ignore our own sin and go about just trying to abide by the laws and make ourselves more of a good person? 
Two, are we living like Barabbas, completely ignoring what Christ had done for us, living our own way, maybe even just falling right back into our own routine as insurrectionists, rebels, and robbers, and thieves in our sin that we are? Three, are we living like Pilate? Are we living our life in self-preservation? Washing our hands of the rest of the world and their problems so we can just take care of ourselves. And so today, again, I ask you to respond now to the crucifixion of Christ. And I'm telling you, there's only two responses. There's only two ways to respond to the crucifixion of Christ. So now we come back to the robbers that were crucified on either side of Jesus. Because they each live out and speak to the response that we will have. So response number one. Well, first let me do this. Let me read for you this interaction. But we have to go to the Gospel of Luke. And in the Gospel of Luke chapter 23, verses 39 through 43, it says, One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So response number one that we can have to the crucifixion of Christ is thief number one. Continue to live our life in every way. Mocking Christ, ridiculing Christ by the way that we live. The example that we give to the rest of the world around us says, I don't need Christ in my life. I'm going to live for myself. And the wages of that sin and lifestyle is death. So thief number one, response number one, is the first half of Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death. And he decided to stop there. But then thief number two. Response number two. He comes to his, as many senses as he had left on his cross. Because Mark's account tells us that both thieves railed against Jesus. But at some point in the beginning of the crucifixion scene to this conversation, something happens to thief number two. Something that he saw, something that he witnessed, or how about the Holy Spirit just infected his life in that moment? Came into him at that moment and opened his eyes to the reality because what other circumstance would have led him to that moment? Again, kind of those wonderment things. Did he, was he there? Did he witness Jesus' ministry at some point in his prior life? What, did he have some understanding of maybe some interaction with maybe the disciples or someone else that gave him knowledge but he never decided to act on that knowledge we don't know and it doesn't matter because the reality is in a moment the holy spirit god himself infects that thief's life his heart his mind in his final seconds let's call it 
and he comes to salvation. Number one, because he recognizes his own sin. I want you to listen to this process in the words that he spoke to Jesus. Listen to what he said again. As thief number one was mocking, thief number two looks at him and says, Do you not fear God? For this man, God himself, is under the same judgment and condemnation we are. And, and we're living it out because we deserve it. He does not. He's innocent. He's done no wrong. So this thief number two recognized his own sin. He recognized that condemnation that he was on the cross for and admitted to it, realized it, and then takes it a step further and does something about it. He lives out the second half of Romans 6.23. He understood that the wages of sin was death and he was about to live that out. But somewhere in that moment, God spoke to him in that moment and said, but the free gift of God through Christ Jesus is salvation, is eternity. And he asks for that right there in that moment. It was Warren Wiersbe that said, he may have reasoned, if his name is Jesus, and it's the Jesus that I heard of, he just might be the Savior. If he is from Nazareth, then he would identify with rejected people. Remember earlier when somebody said about Jesus, what good can come from Nazareth? So those from Nazareth were seen as rejects. So if he is this Jesus, maybe he's the Messiah, maybe he's the Savior, that one from Nazareth, and kind of like a, a, a criminal like myself, I'm being rejected. Maybe he identifies with me and I with him. Here I am just next to him. So just maybe. If he has a kingdom... If he is the king that he is being killed for, then perhaps there's room for me. So somewhere in that short moment, this thief came to that conclusion. And he simply turns and looks at Jesus and says, remember me. My heart is yours. So the beauty of that story is in your last second of breath, Jesus says, my grace is sufficient for you. That is enough for salvation. It does not mean we get to live our life however we choose. It does not mean we get to ignore Christ and live however we want. And then at that last moment before he takes us home, all right, I'll, I'll, I'll commit to him. I'll submit. Mm -mm. <laughs> no, no, no. But that's the response here. And it was enough. So let me finish with a few verses. John 20, 31, the final verse of John's gospel account says, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So maybe this entire life of thief number two came to this moment, but was his life over? No, because Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. Because you've placed your trust and faith and belief in who I am, you will live forever. Beautiful moment. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 says, And without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And Acts 4, 12, And there is salvation in no one else. 
For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And this is the response we need to have. It is in the name of Jesus Christ only by which he provides us salvation because of what he did on that cross for you and for me. For every single person outside of the walls of this tent. And that is how and why we need to pick up our cross daily Deny ourselves because it's not about us in our life and bring this gospel, bring Jesus Christ, bring this hope of salvation to as many people as we can. That is the purpose of why we exist. That is the purpose of why Christ went through what he went through. Not so we could live a comfortable life how we want to. That's nice and easy for us. It's so we can do all we can from one prior thief to another is bring this realization of hope but we have to put ourselves in a position to exemplify who Christ is so examine yourself I will examine myself am I living and speaking in a way that would give any person any individual that comes across my path to look at me or hear me and go Jesus Christ in a good way in a good way because you don't want them to say it in the other way please don't let your life be used to mock the name of christ or allow others to mock the name of christ or ignore the name because if that's christ i don't want him but live your life in a way submit your life in a way where you understand and recognize just like the thief because we are thief number two that we've been set free and provided that gift of salvation recognizing that he is the only way romans 10 9 and 10 i'll close with this because if you confess with your mouth that jesus is lord and believe in your heart that god raised him from the dead you will be saved for with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Stop trying to work your way to heaven, is what that says. Stop just trying to be a good person. It's not how you attain salvation. It is salvation through faith in the name of Jesus Christ. Believing that he exists believing that he died for you, believing that he raised from the dead and conquered death for you, you confess that to the world around you. And that is salvation. God's words to your head, your heart. We need to continue to walk that path. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray.